This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Heal. Well, there's been a small diplomatic row this morning over the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Rishi Sunak cancelled their meeting at the last minute over an ongoing dispute to do with the Elgin Marbles. James, a lot of people in the office see you as a bit of a history buff. So could you just briefly outline to listeners who don't know, how is this dispute unravelled? Well, Natasha, um, in the early 19th century, these marbles were acquired by Lord Elgin, who brought them over to here, and they remain in the British Museum ever since, but they've been quite a thorny issue around uh, restitution, for instance. Successive Greek governments have wanted them back. You know, There's also debates around you know, how the British Museum has kept them over the decades as well. And I think really what's given these talks around this a lot of life in the past couple of years or so is that George Osborne's appointment as chairman of the Board of Trustees of the British Museum uh, and some talk around potentially getting around the 1963 legislation on the British Museum which prohibits any artefacts being taken out of that collection by having a temporary loan which could effectively become a permanent loan so although in name it would be unknown effectively it could be some way to work around the existing legislation so what what what's prompted all this was that on Sunday the Greek, uh, Greek Prime Minister went on the Raccoonsburg show Nine-minute-long interview. The first six minutes, they, they spoke about the small boats crisis and how Greece is handling that. The latter three minutes focus on the, the Parthenon marbles. And uh, during Farage's re-election campaign over the summer, the Greek Prime Minister promised that uh, he would fight for these marbles to be returned to Greece, put in their lovely brand-new spanking museum in Athens. And so that's what's really kicked this row off now. He was due to meet with Rishi Sunak on Tuesday today, but last night the BBC reported that the meeting had been cancelled because Downing Street were irritated by what happened and that therefore they offered a meeting rather than Downing Street with Rishi Sunak. They offered him 70 Whitehall Place with the Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden. Uh, This was taken as a bit of a snub and therefore the meeting was cancelled. He's now returned to Greece, but not with the marbles. (laughs) And Katie, he was supposed to be there to talk about the immigration problems um, in Greece. And some critics have suggested that Rishi Sunak has come across a bit petulant from this. Yeah, I mean, there are a few ways, as ever, of looking at this. I did not expect to be spending my day and also writing the column for this week's magazine on the Elgin Marbles, but that's where we've got to. I think that the feeling in Downing Street and across government is there was an agreement that the Greek Prime Minister would not be bringing up or raising the issue of the Elgin Marbles on his visit here. Um, for some of the reasons James outlined, it's um, sensitive in terms of whether there will be an agreement, the fact that he clearly said on his re-election and the re-election campaign it's something he would focus on. But Downing Street and ministers were under the impression this would not be a live topic. And therefore, I think the decision to use that interview, which is not all about the Elgin Marvels, but of course, I mean, I think you could say, well, it's not our fault they asked about that. But then I think it was quite clear, and that was the main newsline from it, it would come up. And to say, uh, I think the particular phrase, which is irksome, is this idea, you know, it's about splitting the Mona Lisa, um, led to a feeling that were they walking into a trap to then have this meeting, as as was planned, and actually, if you think about the plan that the Greek Prime Minister has, um, combined with that interview, uh, something that had not been agreed, and a decision was made to cancel the meeting. Now, 
as you say, lots of people looked at this and said, this is petulant Rishi Sunak. He's so tetchy. Uh, he can't do, uh, you know, serious diplomacy. He should be focusing and talking about all these key issues. The counter to that is the Greek Prime Minister was still offered a meeting with Oliver Dowden. And Rishi Sunak and his team felt that the terms of the meeting had already moved away from what was initially agreed. So why press on with it if they thought almost as though the UK was potentially going to be sent up? I think it's interesting thinking ahead probably to the Elgin marbles more generally, because you have had, I think, previous prime ministers different positions on it in the sense that there hasn't really been a change in policy. Mm. But I think from what has happened in the past 12 hours, it's quite clear Rishi Sunak feels quite strongly about it. And therefore, this, uh, you know, the statement from number 10 saying our position is it must remain in the permanent collection. If only James Forsyth was here, he could talk about the Persephone clause, um, <laughs> something that he, he raised when he once chaired a panel on the Elgin Marbles for The Spectator. But this idea of can you have, just as Persephone had, you know, six months in the underworld, six months on earth, could they do something like that obviously we're not going to say which country is the underworld right now and risk another <laughs> diplomatic uh, route um, but could there be something on loan or do we read from the the way this has played out that actually the concern in government is much more that as soon as you even concede that which I think is clearly much more where George Osborne is do you end up in a situation where all of a sudden the British Museum is in a place where it wouldn't just be the Elgin marbles uh, it, once you concede oh they should go there but lots of items perhaps with even probably lesser claims from the UK side and the British Museum suddenly are being returned to those countries and what does that mean for the future of the British Museum and other museums when it comes to repatriations and so forth so I think there is the initial diplomatic row and that's the one today and is Rishi Sunak thin-skinned or is he standing up for Britain and then there is I think the politics of where Elgin Marbles go from there and what it says not just about the Elgin Marbles but about the future of museums in the UK if you set certain principles. And I want to ask you both about Labour's position on this but also this as you mentioned with George Osborne this is a debate in the Conservative Party. Mm. We had Ed Vasey on Spectator TV against Douglas Murray and they had a big debate over whether the Elgin Marbles should be returned. James do you know much more about you know is this like something where the Cameroons take one side like how does this divide well, I think there's that people approach it in two ways. I and mean, one is to argue the pros and cons specifically of the Elgin Marbles. And I think that, you know, you can talk around things, for instance, such as the British Museum's pretty poor cleaning of them in the 1930s and the way in which they hushed that up for 60 odd years, including deceiving potentially two prime ministers, I believe, including Harold Macmillan in the 1950s. So there's that one element where you can talk about how the rights and wrongs of this specific case. And I think what Katie talks about is the, the precedent this sets and the wider question. And I suppose, do you really want to, having staked so much capital in kind of coming down on one side of the culture wars and being quite critical of some of the kind of 2020 debates around colonisation, decolonising curriculum, Edward Colson, etc. And having passed you know, laws around and, and moves around uh, retain and explain on terms of statutes, for instance, having restated yourself on that side, do you really want to get into this really kind of thorny issue here? I, I would say that I think that Talking to some Conservative MPs today, I think there's a sense perhaps there's been overreaction. And you know, one of them said to me that, you know, it, voters really care about the votes issue. Could that not have been, you know, could there not have been a merit to somehow, you know, standing with the Greek Prime Minister on that rather than this issue? But I can understand why, you know, that given all the culture element of this and, and the way in which Rishi Sunak wants to, where possible, give red meat without costing himself too much I can understand why he would want to make a stand on this issue I think it's a question of whether you can take the Elgin marbles which I would say is not perhaps 
the issue that strategists think most in the Red Bull and elsewhere <laughs> are walking around thinking about most days, but whether you can move that to a wider debate about possessions, about UK history, about um, repatriations and so mm. forth, and, where, and whether you can do that. For now, though, I think what Labour just want to do is just attack uh, Rishi Sunak as not being a serious you know, player on the world stage, which is one of the few areas in the polling where Rishi Sunak tends to, I wouldn't say necessarily lead, it depends which poll you look at, but you know, standing on the world stage is one of the areas where the Tories have not fallen back as much as they have in most areas. Of course you were helped in that category when you were the actual Prime Minister and doing those things, but therefore I think any opportunity they can have where foreign policy has become particularly in recent years, a bit of a weak area for the Labour Party. Mm. And where they want to make Keir Starmer look statesman-like, they're going to take, and that's what they're trying to do with this. I'd just say, yeah, I mean, Labour's response on this has been to criticise Richard Sunak, suggesting that he's not putting British interest work, that he should have worked with his international partner, etc. I do think perhaps there is a sense that when it comes to it, sometimes Keir Starmer, although he says all the right things, can reveal these moments where... The questions around identity slip. For instance, I remember when he did the interview with the news agents and he said that, you know, he'd rather be at Davos than he would at Westminster. Last week he said he, his favourite anthem was Ode to Joy, the EU one. So I do think perhaps there's questions around things where, although he can go out and be like, I'm patriotic, etc., and say it enough, sometimes I think there are moments that, that, that slip, which perhaps some elements the Tories would like to sort of capitalise upon and open these wider questions of identity that Katie's touching on. And yeah, I mean, I would say that it depends if this actually goes into anything more substantive, but I think there could be some potential there to be uh, worked on. And James, there have been some new appointments in Labour recently. Yes. Uh, so this was all about the appointments which were made in response to those resignations almost a fortnight ago on that Commons vote about Israel-Gaza. So last night, they, Keir Starmer refilled his front bench. There's about a dozen sort of appointments. The one that stands out for me is uh, Gordon Brown's uh, top man, Spencer Livermore, appointed Shadow Exchequer Secretary, along with uh, Steve McCabe, another Treasury veteran from the Brown years. And really, I think this, I mean, it shows that some of these people like Jim McMahon were only sacked a few months ago in the uh, Shadow Cabinet reshuffle for Shadow Environment Minister. So I think it shows perhaps that, you know, his need to draw on different tribes within Labour, Keir Starmer's need, but also in a party of, I think, 198 MPs, just the difficulty in filling these posts. And therefore, how much of this, I think, although we can talk about a 20-point Labour lead, is about kind of keeping that Labour coalition, the show on the road, as until we come to an election. One point I do want to stress is, I think, is that the next parliament, if you take out people who are standing down from Labour, if Labour get a majority of, say, 10 or 20, a very small majority, there'll be more Labour MPs in the next parliament who are new than those who are currently existing ones. It's comparable to 1945, when Labour won a huge amount of new MPs for the first time. And that meant that some people, like Harold Wilson, for instance, became ministers overnight. Normally you do an apprenticeship of two years or so as PPS, a junior minister, etc., climbing up the ranks. Next time, because of how badly Labour did last time and how you know, some people are standing down, the older veterans, etc., it's going to be a new blood. And I think, therefore, you might see, for instance, people like Douglas Alexander, who's expected to win, becoming a minister first time in the first 2024 reshuffle after, if Labour wins that election next year. Though, of course, Douglas Alexander has experience in being in government. Of so course, he would yeah. not be exactly a green MP climbing the ranks in that way. And also, he he has his own critics as well as his own fans. So I think his impact will be an interesting one to watch, uh, should he win what I think is supposed to be Scotland's safest seat and my hometown. But it's also another reason, the small number of MPs, why I think there is an expectation that some of the ministers who quit over the Gaza vote will be back in positions yeah. not too long in the distant future. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thanks for listening.